Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. As we kind of talk about um, bodies and sexuality, um, Kristen's going to kind of help us to explore a, a way of looking at this in, in a, in, rather than what we would call a, a sex negative, a, a basic negative understanding of our sex and sexuality, and shifting that to what is actually a more uh, biblical sex positive understanding of who we are. So, ladies and gentlemen, soon to be Dr. Kristen Regal. So, um, I led a class here on Wednesday night, and I asked um, the class, all the folks were there, um, when you think about the Bible, what is your gut reaction? Would you say that the Bible is primarily a sex-positive book that talks about sexuality in positive ways, or is it primarily a book that presents sexuality as negative? And so let's just do a quick poll. Um, raise your hand if you think that the Bible primarily offers positive messages about our sexuality. What's your gut reaction? Raise your hand if you think that. All right, so we got two. All right, fantastic. <laughs> um, all right, raise your hand if your gut reaction when thinking about the Bible and sexuality is that it's primarily negative messages. Thou shall not. So, um, good news. Most of us are in the same boat except for these two outliers over there. Excellent job. Um, everyone, <laughs> we're glad you're here. Um, everyone in the class that I was teaching said that when they thought about the Bible, their primarily, primary association was that the Bible said a lot of thou shall not and things we shouldn't do. His understanding of sexuality was wrong, which is really interesting. Because if you were to ask me outside of the question about sexuality, what do you think of the Bible? I'd be like, it's a book of love and inclusion. It's a book of relationship with the living God. But the minute I like personally think about like Bible and sexuality, like that all goes out the window, right? It's thou shall not. It's who's not in. It's that you're not good enough, which is really a problem because uh, the Bible actually has a lot more to say about sex and sexuality than we think it does. The issue isn't with the Bible, it's with us and the fact that we live in a sex-negative culture. Um, did you guys talk about sex-negative culture? No. Okay, all right. Um, so, let me get over there. So, um, there's a lot of different ways to understand what sex-negative means, but a definition I found helpful is this one. Um, so, sex-negative culture ha uh, is described as having or promoting a conservative, repressive, or intolerant attitude towards sex and sexuality. So if you think about like how do we talk about sex, right? Sex is seen as shameful, it's seen as dirty, described as things like doing the nasty. We approach sex education from a place of fear, so it's primarily focused on uh, STI prevention, how not to get pregnant, and often a lot of these messages don't just live in a bubble of sex-negative culture, they're connected to other systems of oppression, like sexism in which men are valued over women, patriarchy in which men are given power to write the rules and laws about women's and women's bodies and reproductive rights. It's connected to racism, right, in which women or white bodies are valued over people of color's bodies, and heterosexism, right, where we see straight as normal and that assumption is used to discriminate other people. Yeah. One, one of the things that we didn't um, kind of talk about last week, but in, with uh, the male understanding of yeah. sexuality and being cut off from our hearts, so mm -hmm. um, is that... Uh, the, the, even the metaphors that men use for sexuality, so you're talking yeah. about how it reinforces yep. things. So let's just brainstorm real quickly. When, when boys talk to other boys about having sex 
what do they say? They say, I, I screwed her, I nailed her, I banged her, I, t I tapped that, right? I mean, it is consistently like a dominating, Alex, did you have one with your eyes? No, well, hammered is another one that's, you know, sometimes. Yeah, right, yeah, no, it's, it's a tool, and it's a violent toolbox, right? That, that's, um, that's levered, leveraged against a woman's body. I mean, it's really disturbing. Mm -hmm. But those are the metaphors that, that shape um, how we think about bodies mm -hmm. and about women and, and sex. Mm -hmm. And I would say, so the other side of that is um, Peggy Ornstein, who's this fabulous journalist. She's written some great books. Um, I think we have the resources over here. She talks about sex and sexuality, and the messages for boys and girls start really young and are really different. And so she says that you know parents will often play the body part game with their kids. So you've probably seen this. A parent will say, here's your nose, here's your elbow, here's your chin, and you've got these 10 little toes. Isn't it so cute? Now, parents of male-bodied children will often go, here's your chin, here's your belly button, and here's your penis or your wee-wee or whatever weird name that they choose to call it, right? <laughs> but they'll acknowledge like, hey, here's this penis, and like you need to know what it is, and it's something to be proud of. The problem is when parents of female-bodied children do that same game, they often create what she describes as a blank space from the navel to the knees. So parents have this shame about even talking about girls' genitalia and sexuality or anything that would relate to sex. And so they teach girls from a very, long, very young age, your sexuality, or not your sexuality, your bodies are something to be ashamed of, right? They also don't give girls knowledge or information about their own bodies. And this often doesn't get cleared up when we get to adolescence. It gets intensified and worse for girls. So if you think about sex education, um, again, it's based in fear and shame and often focused on prevention, like STI and pregnancy. Like, that's all girls need to know, right? And so when they do um, things like show anatomy, they only focus on the internal reproductive system. So the uterus, the vagina, the ovaries, and they never talk about external genitalia like the vulva. So what that does, again, is it keeps both men and women uninformed about things like the clitoris or the labia, right? All of that is just not part of what we know. And it also reduces women's bodies to being just about reproduction. So when we don't mention things like the clitoris or teach people about that, clitoris whose only known reason for existing is to create pleasure to women, we continue to silence and shame women around questions of your bodies, pleasure, and autonomy. And then when women get to being 18 or whatever age, they're like, be assertive, be autonomous, like know what you want after telling them for a million years, you're not even allowed to speak these names, right? So there's both sides of it. There's the part that um, I think as Ordenstein says, men are cut off from their hearts and women are taught from an early age, you need to be cut off from your body. If your body doesn't work the way that a man's does, which it shouldn't, something's wrong with it. If you um, are too fat or too thin, you're inadequate. If you are feeling like, um, if you're feeling too much desire, you're wrong. If you're not feeling enough, you're wrong, right? There's all these kind of contradictory messages that kind of focus on shame and fear, especially for women's bodies. And the problem with this is that shame and fear and that discomfort around sexuality, it doesn't just inform how we see ourselves or our relationships or sex in general. It also informs how we see scripture. Um, now, I'm Presbyterian, which means that I know the Bible, but I could not name to you actual 
chapters and verses if you were to ask, like, <laughs> give me an example from the Bible. I'd be like, I kind of know that I heard this story. Are you a Baptist in the house? Anyone? I'll pull a here, right? Why? Like, Sex is bad and nasty. Right. Like, I, yeah, exactly. I'd be like, you know, I know I heard it's, this it one. Right. Wrong, yeah. Exactly. There's like that piece in there. Right. But I would be able to say, like, I've heard that LGBTQ folks, like, that they're wrong. Um, I've heard, like, things about women, right? And I could, like, give you a bunch of kind of vague general examples, right? Um, and just as a side note here, let's get this in the next one. Uh, those passages that you've often heard about women or LGBT folks shouted kind of from street corners. Most of them are from a literal reading of the Bible and from misinterpretations that have been completely kind of debunked and rejected by most scholars, right? So just like as a side note there. Um, but the issue is that uh, it our, our sex-negative um, viewpoint informs how we understand scripture. And so at second, we take scripture seriously, but not literally, which means we pay attention to the social and historical context, right? We don't just take a word like engaged and say, oh, Mary and Joseph are engaged, and be like, oh, that means like he got down on one knee, and there was a proposal, and there was this diamond ring. We're like, no, engaged probably meant something different back then. Um, it meant that a husband was the owner of the wife as property, and so we can't just kind of take it as a one-to-one. -one. Um, it means that we use a Jesus hermeneutic, which is a term by Richard Rohr. Um, if you look at kind of how Jesus engaged, engaged scripture, he did not read the Bible literally, the Torah literally. He really read it very selectively. He tended to reject or de-emphasize passages that focused on violence and vengeance, and he overemphasized or gave greater weight to passages that focused on mercy, justice, and love. He reinterpreted, right? And reinterpreted. Yeah. yeah. So, like, if you think about the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said to you, and he says, I say to you, right? And so he was constantly taking scripture and reinterpreting it. Or even when he starts off his ministry, he, like, stands up in the synagogue and unrolls the Torah, and he says, this passage from Isaiah, I've come to set the captives free and proclaim liberty and blah, blah, blah. So he reads that part, but he doesn't read all of it. The next passage, the next part of that, talks about the vengeance of God, and he doesn't say it. He just says, I'm not, I'm not going to read that part. Like, that is not the God I know, and he understands Scripture not as a book of rules, but about kind of calling us into um, conversation about how we can be in more faithful relationship with the living God. Well, and with someone... I would say I have a pretty yeah. high, what's called a high Christology. So my mm -hmm. understanding of who Jesus was is that I believe Jesus was God. Mm -hmm. And not everybody necessarily goes along with that, even in the Christian faith. But I, I believe Jesus was the embodiment of God. And so that if we want to really know God, we look at Jesus. And so so in my understanding of, of, of Rohr's term, I also just look at, at all, everything Jesus did and said. So you, you look at the life of Jesus, how Jesus treated others, how Jesus read scripture, how Jesus included others, how Jesus touched the dirty that is our fullest understanding of who God is. So anything that we would read in the scriptures that would be contrary to that, we've got to say, mm, that's, that's not the fullest understanding of scripture, right? So Jesus becomes the hermeneutic, not just in the way he interpreted scripture or the way that he um, kind of called to light some passages and ignored others, but also just in, in his entire, mm -hmm. entire life. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so building on that, the other part of it is there's no objective reading of scripture. Like we know this, right? We have four gospel accounts. We have two versions of creation and of uh, the Ten Commandments. And also none of us engage life objectively. <laughs> and so part of that is just recognizing our own social location. That when I read scripture, if there's a passage that says women should be silent in church, 
I refuse to like engage that, right? Like my theological commitment says I believe both men and women and all genders were created in God's image. So if I read that, I'm going to either struggle with it, I'm going to wrestle with it, or I'm going to reject it, right? And we all do that. Um, it also informs kind of what passages we memorize and we learn and we hear over and over again and the ones that we never hear or talk about. And I would argue that in a sex-negative culture, right, it has given weight to a lot of passages that have been misinterpreted and kind of got those stuck in our mind while ignoring all the other things that the Bible says. So I want to just go over like a couple of these passages with you about what else the Bible says about. Hmm. Maybe not. Um, about sex and sexuality. Um, oh, this is, so this is a quote by the Reverend Dr. Deborah Hafner. She's really cool. She says, uh, many people think that they know what the Bible teaches about sexuality. They believe that the Bible teaches that, one, sex is only for procreation, and that masturbation, abortion, and contraception are wrong, when actually the Bible is silent. The Bible is silent on each of these issues. And the other hand, she says, some people assume that it's hopelessly patriarchal and should be disregarded completely, when there are actually, actually texts that emphasize mutuality and equality. And so I want to just lift up a couple of these today. So has anyone ever heard of the Song of Songs? <laughs> right? So it's this beautiful kind of book, this beautiful poetry and literature. It's in the Bible. It's a metaphor for God's relationship with the church. Ah. Yeah. Excellent. That's how we interpret it. Excellent. Uh, yes, a metaphor for God's relationship with the church. Okay, fair enough. Um, so the w I would say the historical context that I've heard is that it is actually an erotic exchange between two unwed teenagers. Or that. Right? Yeah. Or, or that. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, take it as you will. Option A, option B. Right? And so Right, and like, so let's think about it. So there's an erotic exchange between two unwed teenagers that the church decided to keep in the Bible. And this is what it says. And these like man and woman parts, like that's actually in the, the scripture. I'm not putting that in there. So the man says, you are so beautiful, so lovely, my love, delightful one. Your stately form resembles a date palm. And your breasts are like clustered fruit. I say I will uh, climb the palm tree. I will hold its fruit. Your palate is like excellent wine. And the woman responds, like excellent wine flowing smoothly from my love, gliding through the lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his longing is only for me. Come, my love, let's go out to the field and rest all night among the flowering henna. There I'll give my loving to you. What do you all think? Pretty racy. Pretty racy, yeah. Yeah. Super articulate teenagers. I know, right? Very true. Creative writing majors later. I mean, one of the things that I love about this passage, right, is that the woman isn't silenced, right? If you like look at this, like she claims agency and autonomy, there's enthusiastic consent from both partners. Right? There's no shame, like there's pleasure and desire on both sides. And that in the Bible, like we have examples of that, right? It's not just women being silenced or shamed. It's women who say, you know, you know, that your palate is like sweet wine and it's moving and gliding through my lips and teeth, and oh, I feel like I just belong to you. And I'm thinking of that not in terms of like a property sense, but just like we're so in love. 
And then she says, this is what I'm willing to do. She's able to communicate that, right? Um, but the thing is, it's not just heterosexual couples that we, uh, that we have examples of in the Bible. Um, has anyone here ever heard of David and Jonathan? Maybe a couple of folks, right? David was a king. Um, Jonathan was his friend. Um, and so what we've often done is read scripture through a heterosexist um, lens in which we just assume everyone in the Bible is straight. Like just straight up, like, yep, that's the only way it is. Um, and a lot of queer um, theologians and scholars and biblical scholars have been like, uh, have you read the Bible? Because <laughs> there's like a lot of things in there where it's like, all right, if we're going to read through a straight lens, sure, but then we got to do a lot of mental dissonance to disconnect some things. And so we have passages like this. Um, where Jonathan and David meet for the first time, and we're told that the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Right? Doesn't that sound, it doesn't just sound like friends. It doesn't just sound like acquaintances, right? What does that sound like to you? Lovers, right? And then we have these words that David speaks after Jonathan's death. I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan, you were so dear to me. Your love was more amazing to me than the love of women. Right? Like, can we, like, just take a second to, like, read the words, right? And, like, think about what that means. Again, if we're reading through, like, a heterosexual sexed, sexist lens, we can be like, oh, no, 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 they just meant, like, platonic love. But, like, do we know that? Not really, right? It's just our own cultural biases that force us to read in a different way. Um, and it's not just men. We also have passages like this between two same-gendered people, two women, Ruth and Naomi. And some writers and scholars have suggested that they were actually lovers who used Boaz as primarily as a tool of protection within a patriarchal society. And so we have Ruth saying to Naomi, and the funny thing is this is often read at weddings, right? It's an understanding of like what it means to be loving and in a mutual relationship. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus, and so to me. And more as well, if even death parts me from you. So, Kristen, I had a yeah. comment. I just in, yeah. in reading through that, because I, I heard from a, somebody um, for the first time who yeah. identifies as asexual, and recognizing that um, our sexuality is just so, it's so mysterious and beautiful. And, and rather than try to narrow it down or just say you're this or you're that, just to allow it to be as mysterious and beautiful as it is, and to know that two men can love each other and not have sex and, and really care for each other, find each other attractive. Um, and, and two women can, can love each other and go after each other and commit their lives to each other and maybe not be sexually attracted to each other. That, that we still want to kind of bifurcate things into this sex or non-sex, and, and I think it's more mysterious and more beautiful than that. And I think if we read scripture through that kind of lens, we see all sorts of examples of different kinds of love and commitment and intimacy and sexuality yeah. that, um, that to me expands the notion of God's love rather than constrains mm -hmm. it. You know? yeah. Because this is actually her mother-in-law. Right, yeah. 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 And that's the other thing. I mean, throughout, and this is three examples, throughout the Bible we have passages that talk about um, non-monogamous relationships, about relationships between non-married people. We have passages that talk about bodies as good and pleasure as pleasing to God. Like we have all these passages, right? But the ones that we choose to focus on are the ones that say, you know, sex ne that seek to support our sex negative view. 
and it's not just sex. It's like you said, sexuality is a much broader understanding of kind of what it means to understand ourselves and to understand our relationship with others. And then there's this other one that when if I were to ask you kind of like what is the sexual ethic we're called to use, um, Jesus makes it pretty clear. I mean, Jesus says what is the greatest commandment in the law, what's most important of all the scriptures. Jesus says pretty simply, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, the law and prophets depend on these two commands. And what I love about this is it speaks to relationship, but it's not just you must love God and ignore, like, ignore others. It's not just you must love your neighbors as yourself. And like as a woman, I think there's often an emphasis on putting others first and kind of ignoring your own needs. But you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. So it's love self, love neighbor, and love God. All right. Um, and so we're going to break up into kind of small group conversations at tables. Um, but feel free just to reflect on what did you hear in those scripture passages. But then as you think about this commit, commandment, um, what's easiest for you or what do you think is easiest for others? What's most challenging? What is some of the guidance that this commandment offers in, in relationship to love, sex, and relationships? And the last one you don't have to answer because it's kind of personal. Um, but kind of what does this look like for you to practice loving yourself, others, and God? So small group conversations for maybe about five minutes, kind of just general reactions. What do you think? And then here's a couple more conversation questions. All right, ready, set, go. So I have a question for all of you. Um, so what is the Christian standard when it comes to sex? What is a Christian sexual ethic? Right? Not so much who yeah. you ask, but like what denomination you ask. Uh -huh. I feel like it's like very denominational. Well, it goes back to that biblical mm -hmm. perspective, right? Like what is love and marriage in the Bible? And you just have that conversation of like, well, apparently there was polygamy, uh -huh. there was child marriage, uh -huh. there was, you know, probably a lot of non consensual sexual relationships happening. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's so yeah, I mean I'm back to what Ham said, like uh -huh. it, it probably depends, you know. Like. Mm -hmm. So um, let me get more specific then. So what is your sexual ethic then, right? Okay. And so let's like, so we'll make assumptions. Don't, you know, don't have sex before you're married. Like that may be true for some of us. Hopefully polygamy, you know, may be true for some of us or other things. <laughs> like hopefully no unmarried, you know, sex with children or anything else. That would be really terrible. Um, but like what is, like if we were, part of what I realized is when I was growing up, my church didn't talk about sexuality. And so what it meant is in the area where I grew up, which was mostly conservative evangelical churches, um, that churches that did talk about sexuality, and they often talked about sexuality um, in sex negative ways in which um, the flesh was sinful, in which women were to be subservient to men, in which if you were LGBTQ, like that was like a temptation and a sin that you needed to resist all these like terrible things that again have been deconstructed right and like I until I got to college right I couldn't say like what is a healthy Christian sexual ethic right and it wasn't the church that helped me find that it was actually kind of my studies in women and gender and sexuality stuff and the culture at large because I don't think Jesus calls us to be part of a sex native culture in fact I think it goes against what's the will of God so for me, there's a couple of things you should know about me. I'm Kristen. If we haven't met, I'm um, 
cisgender, which means my gender identity, how I see myself in my head, matches my physical body, um, or the sex I was assigned at birth, which is female. Um, I'm Presbyterian, I'm a pastor, and I'm also sex positive. Um, does anyone here know what sex positive means? Anyone? Yeah, go for it. Um, I have a general sense. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, it means um, something different to everyone, so you can't yeah, go wrong. It's, it's there's not one definition. <laughs> so yeah, I would interpret that yeah. as um, seeing sex as a, a natural thing that people do. Yeah, it's not should not be wrapped up in um, shame or fear. Yeah, and or invented moral codes. Yeah, um, that whoever the partners in sex should be equal. Yeah. Enthusiastic consent, consent, things like that. Yeah. So, but mostly just kind of detach it from shame and fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. So detaching it from shame and fear, enthusiastic consent. There was one other thing that you said. Um, equal partners. Equal partners. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts about what sex positive might mean? Again, I think. So, I mean, it means something different to every single person, right? But my understanding of what sex positive means is that um, when we talk about sex and sexuality, we don't start from that place of sheer or, or fear, right? Like shame is not a good place to start with anything, right? Instead, we start with understanding, like Trish said, that like sexuality is part of who we are. And that bodies are good, right? Like they can do amazing things and that God made our bodies the ability to experience pleasure, whether it's through sight or sound or through taste or touch, right? Like that's how our bodies were created. Um, being sex positive means that I focus, and when I'm talking to anyone, including children, youth, or young adults, on enthusiastic consent, on personal agency and autonomy, <coughs> and that we also have conversations about pleasure, which are really important, not just for men, but for women, and communication, right? So it's not only saying no, but it's knowing what are your values, what are your boundaries, and also how do you communicate what feels good to you, right? And that those are equally important. And that if you're not able to do that with your partner, then like you need to have a bigger conversation. Mm -hmm. Being sex positive also means that I think we need to give people medically, technically, and factually, factually accurate information. So if you think about it, less than half of the states, um, sex ed is not required. And of the sex uh, of states where it is required, um, there's not a standard of what is medically accurate, right? which is a huge issue. Like we are afraid to even tell people like, here are the names of your bodies, here are how they work. And when we don't do that, people don't have the ability to make decisions that are healthy and right for them about their bodies, about their sexuality, about sex, about relationships in general. Kristen, can you yeah. just tell them the, the little bit of study you did with, I think it was the Netherlands and how they yeah. have done their educational system? Yeah, so this comes again from Peggy Ornstein. Um, and she talks about how there was a study that was done between um, sex-negative cultures, which is like the U.S., and then the Netherlands. And so a while ago, I think it was like in the 80s or 90s, maybe even before then, both the U.S. and the Netherlands kind of approached sexuality from a place of shame um, and kind of saw sex as dirty in the same way. And then the Dutch government was like, this isn't working. And the thing of sex-negative uh, teaching isn't working. Like we have one of the highest STI rates in the world among industrial countries we have one of the highest teen pregnancy rates among industrialized countries right like this approach it's the the dividends have not been great like the data just is pretty clear. yeah it's like very clear like this is not helpful so in the Netherlands they decided to change it so they started having sex education in schools that focused on um, not only how not to get pregnant but it focused on pleasure 
It focused on medically accurate information. And when they interviewed a bunch of teenagers from both the US and the Netherlands, they found some pretty interesting things. Um, and these were all college-bound girls, and so people who were like basically the most likely to benefit from the feminist movement. In the US, they found that when moms talked to their daughters about sex and sexuality in their own bodies, they did so from a place of fear and shame, that they often focused on the potential risks of sexuality, and that dads were uninvolved in conversations or else just they are making lame jokes. That's actually from the study, making lame jokes. Wow. Uh, <laughs> right, like that was there. Um, and that the girls had lower self-esteem. They felt like they didn't have personal agency in relationships. And many girls said, I wish I would have waited longer to have sex. But they were saying there's a lot of gender equality in there. In the Netherlands, they did um, the same conversation with um, girls who were kind of equal in terms of their status. Um, and they found that when moms and dads, but it was still mostly moms, talked to their daughters, they talked about personal autonomy, about desire, about pleasure, and about um, having agency over their own bodies. And what they found is that when they asked these women in the Netherlands, hey, describe your first sexual experience, what is your feeling? They said it was within a loving, committed relationship, which is not what girls in the US were saying. So in terms of their self-esteem, it was higher. In terms of their experience of sex and sexuality, it was higher. And when they talked about it, they said in the Netherlands, it was really uncomfortable for a lot of parents because what they were saying is, rather than seeing sexuality and puberty as this time of like danger, like your hormones are gonna be crazy, you're gonna make a bad decision, they said, oh my gosh, we all have hormones and craziness, right, during, um, during adolescence and puberty. So what we're gonna do is rather than having our kids go have sex in the park, parents started to say, okay, we're gonna have sleepovers here. And the parents said, I'm really uncomfortable, but I'd rather have something happening under my roof where I'm able to talk about it and say like, I know this is gonna happen, so how do I have you be an re informed, responsible sex partner? Um, the other thing that they found with it, um, which was really interesting, is that in like the 90s, they reevaluated how the sex ed program was going, and they found that a lot of girls were still saying that men were still supposed to have more agency and be more active in sex. So they added another component to the program in the Netherlands, focused on communication, um, in which they focused on how girls can both communicate their own needs and desires and pleasures, and how, they, how both partners can um, be able to communicate what their boundaries and their values are, right? So like, it's just, it was like a really interesting way to do it. And again, in the US, girls were saying inequality, I wish I would have waited. This isn't a loving relationship. In the Netherlands where they were open and they didn't start with a place of shame, still inequality, right? But it was loving. I'm glad I had sex this time. I felt supported by not only my partner, but by my parents and community, right? Mm -hmm. Like how beautiful is that? Yeah, you said something awesome about love. Yeah. The, the, in, the, in the United States oftentimes it was a negative first experience mm -hmm. and in the Netherlands it was positive. Positive, and yeah. And just, just that in and of itself is so yeah. beautiful. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like I said, I am sex positive, right? And I gotta be honest, like being sex positive has made me a better Christian, right? It's made me less judgmental of other people. It's made me love myself more. Like it's made me reject some of the cultural messages I've received as a woman um, about my body and inadequacy and shame. It has made me recognize the importance of consent and agency and communication in all relationships, right? And I'm not a sex positive Christian in spite of my faith. I'm a sex positive Christian because of my faith, right? Because of what I understand, which is our bodies and sexuality are created and given to us as a gift from God, that we're called to be in relationship, right? 
that we should be talking about pleasure and desire and seeing this as part of what it means to be natural and um, called to live in a relationship. And it also means that like I recognize that all of us, pastors included, right, like have all misused our sexuality, right? Like that there is, if we're gonna like really be sex positive Christians, we have to name that and create space for that. And rather than saying the church is for morally pure people and it's judgment and shame, be like, no, like let's be honest and say like, okay, we haven't all lived up to what God wants us to be and be a space where we can call each other in to do better, right? Like that's, that's what I hope for. Um, so I've been downstairs teaching sex ed to our fourth through sixth graders and many of you have probably met them, not met them, but they are amazing, right? And like, it has given me such hope because they're curious, they ask great questions, they're loving, they're supportive, they're smart. And it's one of those things like, sex negative isn't the only way, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to be sex negative in order to be good Christians. In fact, I would say being sex positive is a more faithful way um, of following Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. Um, so what do you guys think? It's a lot. Where were you when I was 10? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's this interesting question, right? Like, come on now. Like, we've got a lot to undo, right? And it's not a, like, sexuality, like we have freedom and we're called to use it responsibly, but we're also called to, and again, sexuality can be that you are celibate or that you have lots of sex or no sex. Like, there's not a part of it where it's saying all sex all the time with anyone, right? It's just saying that each person has the right to make their own informed decisions, right? And, and that, that idea of, of love, yeah. right, is the kind of, that's, yeah. not a, that's not a simple thing. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's our boundary as Christians, yeah. is we still, we gotta love yeah. the other person, and they gotta know that, that yeah. we love them and we love ourselves. And so it's, it's, it's not easy, it's not a loose and easy no. ethic. No. no. So we're gonna do this just for a second. Um, Everyone's getting a piece of paper or a post-it note, and so I invite you just to actually draw that out. You can finish kind of your sexual ethic later, but just to ask this question, you know, what guidance does this commandment offer in relation to love, sex, and relationships? But then also kind of this question of what does it look like for you to practice loving God, loving yourself, or loving others, right, as it relates to relationships, to intimacy, to sex or sexuality? Um, and we're going to spend about three minutes doing that, and then we're just going to close um, with one more piece. So... Um, why don't we have one person from each table come forward and I'll give you this step. But again, you're going to kind of fill this chart out as you start to think about what is your sexual ethic. Right. And I invite you to take a piece of paper again. I encourage you to keep thinking about like what is a Christian sexual ethic look like for you. Maybe think about that on your ride home or spend some time writing out. For me, I kind of like what Sam was saying, I found it a really helpful exercise just for me to even know, like, for myself, like, what are my values? Like, mutuality, equality, pleasure, autonomy, agency. Um, and it's helpful. It gives you guidance. So I'd invite you to turn over your piece of paper. And I want to end with just a couple of other um, messages that come from Scripture. So often when we think about the Bible, we can think about all the negative messages that come about who we are. Um, and I invite you just to take a look at these and flip over your piece of paper when you're ready, and just say, like, when you think of God, what do you see God saying to you? Because here are some of the things that we hear God saying to us in Scripture. You are my child. You are chosen. You're not condemned. You're forgiven. You are right in my eyes. You are a new creation. You are loved. You cannot be separated from my love. You are God's masterpiece. You are a work in progress. You are free. You are wonderfully made. 
And so I invite you just to pick one of those and to write it on the back of your paper to remember that this is God's message to you. And then we'll just stand and we'll say peace be with you and closed. Right, and then friends, I invite us just to stand real quick. So as we close, I invite you just to look around the circle, right? We are not just spirits, we are not just souls, we are embodied, enfleshed people. So you look around the circle, see the different faces, and in each face, look and see that you get a fuller glimpse of God. God who created us, gay and straight, trans and queer, male and female and non-gender, in God's image. Feel the hand of the person who's standing next to you and recognize that we are connected we are made for relationship. We're not called to do this life alone. And that we are all very, very good. Amen. Amen. Kristen, thank you so much. Yes, thank you.